<laughs> so it's all good stuff, but you might find yourself peeking over my shoulder or peeking into the text and getting that sense that maybe I missed a thing or two, right? <laughs> Could I get some salad with these croutons? <laughs> so that's the first thing that I'd like to kind of explain a little bit. Second, I'm going to do my best to describe the transfiguration story in its context within the three Gospels and within Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to do that by pointing out where the story falls in each of the Gospels and then drawing some parallels between the transfiguration and Jesus' baptism. And then finally, I'm going to take us to the book of 2 Peter. And I'm going to lean heavily on Peter in order to kind of help me frame our discussion of the transfiguration story and how it applies, or how it should apply in our lives. Uh, and I feel comfortable and confident doing that because Peter was an eyewitness to the transfiguration. So if Peter uses the transfiguration to educate or encourage, then I feel like that's probably a pretty good direction for us to go that's with right. the transfiguration story as well. So let's start by reading the account in Matthew chapter 17. You find it in Matthew 17, verses 16 to 21. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 17, verse 16. And I apologize. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. Yeah, my mistake. Matthew 17, 1 to 9. So right at the start of the chapter. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Amen. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So let's get to that first point. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are tough for me to comprehend. I struggle to wrap my brain around stories about, like uh, Chris mentioned earlier, pillars of smoke and pillars of fire, manna from heaven, nonstop rain for even four days, let alone 40 days. <laughs> And this story, the transfiguration story, is on that list. Things in the Bible that, to me, it's just hard to understand what's happening. Why is it happening? Why is God working this way? What does it really mean? And this story sticks out in the Gospels from the litany of healings, demonic expulsions, feeding thousands, teaching in parables. Of all the stories of Jesus' ministry, all the stories in the gospel, the transfiguration story to me 
has more in common with Jesus' baptism than anything else. It seems like there are, there are some similarities. The, the narrative is kind of similar, the setup. Then you get, uh, you know, the, the, so the organization of the narrative is kind of similar. And then you get, you know, this experience of hearing God speak audibly, right? This booming voice from heaven. That's a pretty striking similarity. So starting with that idea that, okay, there's some similarities between the baptism story and the transfiguration story. We kind of try and draw some parallels and then figure out why this kind of why this matters or, or, or what it means. I'm going to apply some logic to that thought and see if we can we can uh, make any connections. And starting with Jesus' baptism is helpful for me because I feel way more comfortable with the baptism story than I do the transfiguration story. Baptism kind of makes sense, right? Baptism is something that, for many of us as believers, it's something that we've experienced for ourselves. And so we have sort of a personal analog that we can go, okay, I remember, you know, I remember that experience. I know what that was like. I understand what the purpose was for me. So maybe the purpose for Jesus was the same. But to my knowledge, none of us in here have ever been transfigured before. So we're kind of at a little bit of a loss to make that personal connection, right? But let's, let's kind of explore this idea some more, though. If the transfiguration and the baptism are the same, then maybe that can help us to understand better What's going on with this transfiguration event? And on that idea of why it's easier for me to understand or relate to the baptism story, is that because somehow I, I don't believe the transfiguration account? No, it's not that I don't believe it. I believe the transfiguration happened. It's just I feel like I get the baptism more than I get the transfiguration. It comes easier is what I'm trying to say. And part of that is that I understand where it fits in Jesus' ministry. I mean, it's pretty clear. Jesus goes out and gathers his disciples, you know, after we learn about how he was born and then, uh, you know, wh- what his parents did and some of the events of his childhood, where he lived and those kinds of things. Then we get to the baptism. And then after his baptism, boom, his ministry really begins, right? So it fits contextually because it's the beginning. It's the beginning of his ministry. So that to me makes sense. It fits. Following Jesus' baptism, he begins to go out and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, calling on people everywhere to repent, challenging the religious elites, welcoming sinners, and encouraging them to live a life of repentance. And that all happens after his baptism. The thing about his baptism is that his baptism and that event made it absolutely clear to his disciples that what he was then going out and doing was ordained by God. In that way, it really was a milestone marker for his disciples. Remember, this is my son in whom I am well pleased or with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God descended like a dove on him. Kind of a big deal, right? We all were there as his disciples. We saw that. And now we see Jesus going out and doing these amazing things and challenging the the religious establishment. And we have faith that this is directed by, approved by God Almighty because we saw that, right? So then is there a parallel between those ideas about Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration? I think there is. 
In fact, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, where they describe the transfiguration, all of them place the transfiguration towards the end of Jesus' ministry. If you read what remains of each of those books after the transfiguration, you find a couple of accounts of other things that Jesus did, you know, uh, casting out a demon, clearing the temple after the, uh, the triumphal entry to, into Jerusalem, the, um, the anointing at Bethany. Those events all, all kind of fit there in the period between the transfiguration and Jesus' crucifixion. But there's really not much in terms of events. There's a lot of text, but that text is almost entirely teachings. It's parables. It's, it's, it's uh, woes too. you know, Jesus calling out the religious establishment. So it's not a description of things that happened. It's a description of things that, te- that Jesus taught, things that Jesus said. And so you can almost picture, you can almost picture the authors of those gospels, you know, getting to this point where, yep, and then the transfiguration and man, I got to talk about all this stuff that Jesus said. I have to make sure that I don't leave that out. And, but trying to connect back, well, when did he give, when was the parable of the, of the workers in the vineyard? Was that, you know what? I'm just going to pile it all in here and we'll just, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's logical. It kind of makes sense that they organized their writing that way. You know, hey, before I, before we get to the end, there's more that I have to share about what Jesus taught. I can't leave it out. And it wouldn't make any sense for me to plug in more parables after I've described his resurrection. So let me just knock it all out right here, right? And they almost all, all three, all three books did that. So where that puts this event on the timeline of Jesus' ministry, are we talking beginning, middle, or end here? It's like right at the end, right? Maybe not quite the end. Maybe it's like toward it. The end of the beginning, or it's the beginning of the end. You know what I mean? It's, it depends on where you slice it, but but it's definitely a transition point, right? There's there was a transition that happened at Jesus' baptism, and now there's this next. This is this big transition that's happening as Jesus goes into the end of his life on earth, his pre-resurrection life on earth, and uh, and the transfiguration marks that point. The disciples' experience witnessing Jesus' baptism made it clear to them that the events that followed, his miracles, his teaching, his challenges to the religious elite, were ordained by God. And they lived through those events confident that Jesus was chosen by God to do that work, even if and even when they didn't understand every single thing as it was happening. Amen. In the same way, Jesus' transfiguration was intended to bolster the disciples' faith that everything that was about to happen was ordained by God and that Jesus was who he claimed to be, even if the disciples couldn't fully comprehend what was happening or why. So, who was the transfiguration for? Why did it have to happen? Luke 9.31 says, They, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So based on that verse, one could make the case that the transfiguration was for Jesus himself. He was discussing what was about to happen with Moses and Elijah. But why them? Like, why Moses? 
Why Elijah? Here's another fun thing to ponder. There were no photographs back then. There's no videos. Like the disciples were like, hey, it's Moses and Elijah. And it's like, yeah, how do you know? Well, you got it's like it's interesting that Peter oh, called him out by name. Oh yeah. You got like old guy number one and old guy number two. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe in their glorified bodies, maybe it's like twenty-year-old Moses and twenty-year-old Elijah. Like we don't know, right? But either way, they didn't never seen them. They never seen them. <laughs> but they knew all. somehow. They knew. Like how did they know though? They knew how by they? the Holy Spirit for sure. I'm backing away from the buffet, people. I'm backing away from the buffet. Yeah. My plate is <laughs> my plate is not big enough, right? My plate's not big enough. Yeah. But that's interesting that he knew. Yeah. Peter, Peter called it out in his text. Why them, though? Maybe, maybe we can, we can piece together some theories about why God chose them. Moses brought God's law to the people of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. Elijah was one of Israel's most renowned and revered prophets. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy. Amen. That's right. Maybe that's the reason. But in order to know, like in order to really know why Moses and Elijah were present with Jesus in that moment, we'd have to know Moses, like personally know Moses. We'd have to personally know Elijah. And we'd have to have a deep understanding of the nature of those two individuals' relationship with God and how they fit in the big picture. And I'm sorry, guys, but I ain't got that. I don't know. I don't know why God chose those men to be there with Jesus in that moment, but I know that he did. I have to trust that God knows why he selected Moses and Elijah. And I'll leave it to theologians and Torah scholars to explain the significance specifically of Elijah's presence. And you can connect those back to prophecies in Malachi, which is a book just prior to, to Matthew, the last book of the New Te- or Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 has some prophecies concerning Elijah's role in, uh, in the messianic uh, life and, uh, and his return to earth. So, Please feel free to dive into that if you are so inclined. But I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to go back to the original question. Who was the transfiguration for? And I think there's another parallel here that connects this event and Jesus' baptism. As I mentioned or alluded to earlier, I think the transfiguration was a specific revelation to the disciples. It was a revelation of Jesus in his glorified state or his glorified condition before his death and resurrection. It's interesting to me that Jesus told them not to share their experience with anyone until after he was raised from the dead. And so you imagine the walk down the mountain for these guys. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) I mean, some other things that aren't clear from the text, you have to kind of guess in... uh, in Luke, it describes the disciples as being heavy with sleep. In my mind, and maybe it's because of like, like old classic paintings of the Transfiguration or something like that, but in my mind, the Transfiguration happens like broad daylight, right? But they're heavy with sleep. So does it happen in the daytime? Does it happen at nighttime? 
It doesn't even say how long they were on the mountain for. Was this a day hike? Did they pack a bag? Were they hunting rabbits while they were up there? You know what I mean? Like how, how long were they up there for? Were they up there for days? I mean, sometimes they would do that kind of stuff, right? We have, we get the idea that Jesus and his disciples sometimes would retreat to a secluded location and they spent some intense time in prayer and fellowship and teaching, right? So was it that kind of a deal? You know, were they up there for a few days? I mean, the greeting that they get when they come back, depending on which gospel account that you read, makes it clear that they've been up there for a while. You know, people are pretty excited to see him come back. So all that is to say, we don't really know exactly how long they were up there or what time of day this happened or whatever. But I just imagine these poor guys walking back down the mountain after how long, however long they were up there. And they're like, looking at each other like, you heard him say it again, right? Like, I didn't just imagine that. He just said that we can't say anything about what just happened up there until after he's raised from the dead. Like, he's going to die. What is going on? Like, wh where am I right now? Like, these guys were so mind-blown. You know, it kind, of, it kind of makes sense that uh, when we put ourselves in their position and think about being in an experience like that, witnessing something like that, and, uh, and poor Peter just got shushed by God, right? Like Peter's in the middle of saying, we're going to build three tents. And then boom, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like Peter, shut up. You know, it's like, poor Peter. So he's like, man, I just got shushed by God. Now Jesus says he's going to be raised from the dead. I don't understand. It's really fascinating to me to think about all of the different times that Jesus predicts his own death and how his disciples just don't get it, right? It's like he keeps telling them, yeah, I'm going to die. And they're like, right, good one. Yeah, this is so weird. <laughs> like, why does he keep saying that? And the reason it's so hard for them to get, like, we get it because hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Oh, of course, well, Jesus had to die because, you know, propitiation and blah, blah, whatever, however you want to, you know, wrap that all up. You know, we look at it as like, well, yeah, you know, Jesus was our atonement. He was the, he was the, he was the, he was the lamb. He was our savior who died for us. But when he's talking about his own death, when he's prophesying or predicting his own death for his disciples, it's not sinking in. And the reason it's not sinking in isn't because they're dumb. And it's not because they don't understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. It's because they had some baseline assumptions about what the Messiah was and who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah's presence on earth was going to mean for Israel as a nation that did not jive with dead. Yeah. Like, there's stuff that you're supposed to do, dude. And last time I checked, you're not going to be able to do it if you're dead. What am I talking about specifically? Much of their misunderstanding centered on their assumptions regarding the coming of the Messiah and what that would mean for them. And that's because they saw themselves in their immediate human historical context. What a bunch of dummies. Yeah. I mean, who could blame them, right? Like, that's exactly what we do too, right? Look around, man. Yeah, right now. Look around. We do the exact same thing. We can't help ourselves. How are we supposed to have that big picture? We don't have any idea what God's bigger plan is. We just know where we are right now, right? 
And right now for those guys was, we need some help, man. Look around. It was like Romans crawling all over the place, right? We're supposed to be redeemed. We're supposed to be delivered. The Messiah is supposed to come and make all this right. And what does make all this right mean? It means get them out of here, you know? Give us our freedom back. Give us our own, be our king. Return us, return our sovereignty, right? Make us God's people. Make us a respected nation. Not some, you know, funny little footnote on the hind end of the Roman Empire. That's not who we are, right? And so that's what they're expecting. That's what they want from Jesus. That's what they think he's bringing. So the idea that Jesus is going to die, it doesn't really fit. How could Jesus deliver them from the Romans if he gets killed by the Pharisees or the Romans? Or both. So that's kind of what they're dealing with. But again, here... I'm finding that the food's a little too big for my plate, so I'm backing away from the buffet, <coughs> carrying my saucer down the line. Am I being flippant or cynical when I stop short of trying to explain all of the intricacies of this event? Am I selling the transfiguration short if we don't draw the deepest bucket from the well that we can? I don't think so. You know why? Because Peter himself, who was an eyewitness of the transfiguration, didn't bother to dive into all of that when he explained it in 2 Peter verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. So let's check it out. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. That's way at the very back. Flip all the way back to Revelation. Then flip through the J books, and then you find yourself at 2 Peter. I'm going to read from the NIV. Peter says in verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. Other translations use the word myths or fables. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories or myths or fables, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hu though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So what did he do? He said, it wasn't just a story. It happened. It was real. I was there. 
let me do my best to convey this assertion in no uncertain terms. Why? Why does Peter want to convey this truth? Why does he want to convince us that he saw Jesus glorified on that mountain, that he heard God's voice speak and declare that Jesus was the Son of God? Why? He said, for, was the very first thing he said, right? And I think it's because, to Peter, it was, crit it was critical that his readers be able to explain to future generations the specific significance. Or sorry, this was a rhetorical question. I messed it up. Was it critical that his readers be able to explain to future generations the specific significance of the presence of Moses and Elijah? No. Did he bother to explain the specific significance of the presence of Moses and Elijah? No. If that's not the reason, what was he trying to do? Look back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 15. Here's what Peter's doing. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
immediately after challenging us to live that life where we are constantly looking to increase in godliness, to increase in virtue, to increase in knowledge, to increase in self-control, to increase in love, immediately after calling us to that life of obedience. Peter shares the story of the transfiguration. He says, we didn't just make this up. See, Peter's a person. It's easy to forget. He's a disciple. He's not a person. God's an apostle. Depending on who you are, where you grew up, he's a saint. He's not a person. No, he's a dude. He's a guy. Just like me and you. He's a person. And he's a person with an experience who's trying to convince you that his experience happened. He's trying to convince you to believe something impossible. How do you compel somebody to believe something that's totally unbelievable? You have to just stand up and call it, right? You just have to stand up and say, I know, man, it sounds crazy. I know. But I was there. It happened. Jesus Christ is the real deal. Don't forget. Don't let go. Don't give up. I'm not always going to be around to remind you. So tell your kids. And teach them to teach their kids. And teach somebody else's kids. So that future generations can be reminded of this truth. Jesus is the Christ. Live accordingly. My prayer for us as a church is that we would take the transfiguration story on faith just like Peter asked us to. It's all we can do. This is one of those times where it's like, what does faith mean to you, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what faith means to me. Faith means that I read in the Bible about Jesus being transfigured and Elijah and Moses were there. Peter, John, and James, they saw it. But they couldn't tell anybody until after Jesus was raised from the dead because he told them that they had to wait. Um, And God spoke and said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Please listen to him. Peter saw that. And then later Peter wrote down some stuff about how I should live. And so faith means that I believe the story and I believe that I should live the way that Peter is asking me to live. Right? Mm-hmm. I should do this. Amen. I should. Second Peter. Chapter 1. Second half of verse 5 to verse 7. That we as a church should respond to Peter's challenge in faith. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. So vintage. Let's get out there and do that. Amen.